Hello, how are you? Welcome to the Liratas Podcast. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join me as we explore the world of iconic writer Robert Anton Wilson, his reality labyrinth of ideas, and the many, many currents of influence running through them. Visit us at alaridospress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. And help us find the others by sharing, subscribing, reviewing. You know what to do. It helps more than you might think. In our last episode, I discussed Marshall McLuhan with director of the McLuhan Institute, Andrew McLuhan. In this episode, I discuss the father of information theory, mathematician, engineer, and cryptographer, Claude Shannon, with his biographers, Rob Goodman and Jimmy Sani, authors of A Mind at Play. Rob and Jimmy, welcome to the Laritas Podcast. Thanks so much for having us on, Matt. Happy to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're here to talk about Claude Shannon, who you two have written a biography on. Um, so maybe we just start with a little introduction on each of you and, and how you got to this project together. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I can start. Um, so I, I'm not um, a, a scholar of information theory or computer science in my day job. I'm actually a political theorist. Um, so I work on uh, rhetoric and history of political thought. And, and before I got into uh, academia, I was a speechwriter. So you know, I come from a very different uh, background than Claude Chen and a lot of the people who work with him, of course. Um, but when uh, Jimmy approached me with the idea for this book, it, it sounded like a great thing to jump on, uh, you know, because it was a little bit outside my comfort zone, because we really tried to approach this project um, you know, as journalists rather than experts, but as journalists, what we were interested in doing was one, um, learning about Shannon's influences, um, his his growth, his intellectual development, uh, his impact, uh, the communities that he worked in, the people he worked with, uh, what his life was like. Um, and two, um, explaining why what he did was so important to the information age and to computers and other technologies we take for granted in a way that, that people like us could get, in a way that kind of worked for lay people um, who weren't in that world. Because if you're in the, the information theory world, the computer science world, um, the engineering world, uh, you, you certainly probably know who Claude Shannon is. Um, you know a lot about his impact. Uh, you know that he's probably one of the heroes of that field. But you know, for a lot of people outside that world, um, Shannon in many ways is sort of an unsung hero. He's someone who uh, doesn't really get the recognition that uh, we think his work merits. So we were really excited about learning about uh, why he matters so much um, and then trying to share that uh, you know, with people like us who come out of a more uh, you know, humanities or, or non-science background, um, but can still really appreciate the, the intellectual journey uh, that Shannon was on. So it was a say, real pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, I would add also, this is Jimmy, I would add that you know, he's he's also just a phenomenally interesting, fun, quirky person, kind of in the spirit of mm-hmm. Richard Feynman. You know, he built chess playing machines and robots and a lot of uh, just kind of his mind wandered in a really wonderful way. And we wanted to explore that side out of him as well. The side that, you know, he had, he had basically revolutionized the entire field 
but was also a, just a, a playful person throughout his career. And it was a, it was an interesting kind of juxtaposition and we wanted to explore that part of his life as well. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, when I first started reading the book, your book, uh, Richard Feynman popped in my head as just, you know, um, like these two characters in, in the science world, but yet they were very different in their own way. Um, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, I, think, I think, you know, we, oh, I, I was going to say that you think about the connection with Shannon and Feynman, I think what, what they have in common is just a really um, promiscuous interest in so many different areas of their field. They, they were people who weren't really willing to stay bound in, in one little small niche and the ability to carry things on from one field to another was really transformative for uh, a lot of the projects they're both engaged in. Yeah, Personality-wise, I think there's a huge difference. Feynman, I think, is famously known for being um, a, a charismatic, outgoing scientific celebrity. Um, and, and Shannon, as we learned about his life, there, there was a period in which he sort of tried on that role and realized it didn't fit him. Um, he was a much more uh, retiring, uh, introverted, closed-door sort of person, um, which meant on the one hand that, you know, there aren't the sort of uh, colorful Shannon anecdotes that there are about Feynman, but, but it is on means on the other hand, there's a lot to discover about him, a, a lot about his uh, creativity and, and playfulness uh, and, um, you know, passion for a lot of the fields he worked in that, you know, simply didn't get publicized the way that, say, a Feynman or a Buckminster Fuller or some of those other sort of mid-century scientific figures were able to self-publicize. You know, Shannon really deliberately decided that that wasn't going to be the path he was going to take. I would, I would add, too, that I think that with, with Feynman and Shannon, you have people who are unafraid to look silly in the eyes of other people. And so there is a way in which, like, part of them being able to explore a lot of different domains is just a willingness to not really care what what other maybe professionals in their field or more buttoned up scientist types would think. And, you know, you had people who criticized Shannon for, for kind of leaving formal electrical engineering and academic writing, uh, but he was largely indifferent to those opinions. And you get the same sense from Feynman and from others that a, that a lot of the curiosity that motivated their, their greatest breakthroughs was also the curiosity that led them to, you know, to lock breaking or to card playing or to machine design, uh, it all came from the same place. And I think that's really important. And it's one of the things we tried to explore with the, with the Shannon biography. Yeah, that seems to be one of the things that truly makes this guy fascinating is he just uh, let his mind wander and, and wander it did. And he did so with that humility. And uh, what came up for me at one point was like this beginner's mind uh, kind of approach to things where he, he didn't seem to let preconceived notions get in his way. Um, well, I wanted to appreciate uh, what you said earlier, Rob, about just writing a book that would be presentable. Writing a book as journalists that would be presentable. I have a, a chemical engineering background and I, I don't pretend to be uh, really strong in, in some of these areas of that, that Shannon was in. And I found your book... Uh, really helpful in laying it out and, and explaining some of the technical things in a way that I, I could wrap my head around rather easily. And um, so really appreciate that. Well, so we've kind of touched on this, but maybe tell me uh, if, if you were approached, I mean, Shannon flew under the radar for a lot of people. So let's just say, uh, how would you say to a lot of those people what he, uh, what makes him interesting? 
Uh, what makes Shannon interesting? Well, I'd say one of the things that makes him interesting is that he worked in so many different fields. He wasn't really someone to be pigeonholed for most of his life. So he was someone that, that had his start in, in electrical mechanical engineering. Um, his master's thesis has been described as the most influential master's thesis of all time. Uh, and one of the things he did is he invented the basis uh, of uh, digital computing, um, the idea that you could um, use circuits that, that can represent states like on or off, the, the sort of basic binary state one or zero. And you could use these to evaluate logical statements, which is basically part of the intellectual intellectual architecture of all modern computers we use, because what you know, computers do is they evaluate logical statements um, using circuits, which in Shannon's time were um, sort of unwieldy mechanical circuits. These were sort of before the um, uh, um, the uh, origins of the, the, the transistor and, and, um, and the chips that we're familiar with now. But uh, he laid the basis of that. But, but then he went on to work all over the place. He worked in genetics. Uh, he worked in information theory, which is probably his most famous work. And he gave us things like the um, uh, invention of the concept of a bit as a way of measuring information. Uh, and he also did so many you know, fun, practical, playful, jokey things, uh, things like the famous uh, flame shooting trumpet, um, uh, uh, one of the very first wearable computers, one of the very first chess computers, um, uh, a whole arsenal and repertoire of uh, accessories for, for juggling, juggling and riding pogo sticks. Uh, he was just the guy who really um, benefited from having the, the fun and the intellectual and creative freedom to uh, study the things that interested him. Um, and to work on things that impressed him. And he always did it, you know, as, as we said, in a really unconstrained, um, creative, playful way. You know, as, as Jimmy said, I think, and you also said he was not really afraid to make himself look silly. And in the process of that, um, he really brought together some fascinating innovations, you know, specifically in early computer information theory that uh, might not have been possible uh, without some of his caliber and his interests. So, yeah, just thinking about this, it's still hard for me to wrap my head around all the different things, but I do see common threads. Uh, so his master's thesis, um, it was around integrated circuit design, right? And it seemed like it was a real hit or miss science, so to speak, at the time. Like there wasn't really a theoretical framework. They were just kind of... Uh, cobbling computers together at a very basic level and seeing what worked and what didn't. And he uh, saw this completely unrelated form of algebra and saw how it applied to integrated circuits and, and just created a whole theoretical framework for what we now know today. Is that an accurate? Yeah. Yeah. What's really interesting is that um, Shannon uh, you know, did this famous master's thesis in the 30s. I believe it was 1936 when it was published. Um, in which I, at the time, I don't think it was really expected that someone like him with an electrical engineering degree um, would have to take a course in logic. Uh, but he just happened to, to be in a course in logic in the philosophy class, in a philosophy class at the University of Michigan, where he was an undergraduate. Um, and um, when he went on to master's work with uh, Beniever Bush at uh, MIT, um, he brought this connection together, the connection between um, switches and circuits on the one hand, uh, and Boolean algebra, you know, the basis of evaluating statements on, on the basis of true or false or ones or zeros, on the other hand. Um, so the computer that Shannon was working on along with Bush um, was a, a massive um, uh, analog computer. Uh, rather than evaluating things uh, in, in sort of an off-on state, uh, it was essentially, it would, would evaluate equations by drawing the answer on a graph. Um, so the speed at which the various components of the computer sp spun 
um, was connected to the um, uh, essentially the problem you asked it to solve. And that, that's what made an analog computer rather than a digital computer. But the neat thing about this computer was that one very small part of it um, functioned in a digital manner with, with a series of switches and controls that, that flipped on and off. And, and it was you know, Shannon's job as a master student uh, working with Bush to manage and oversee and take care of this computer. Um, but this is sort of when he made the connection between the, um, uh, the switches, the sort of the, the digital part of the analog computer, which is sort of a sideshow to the main event, and his work on Boolean algebra. Um, and that's what enabled him to figure out uh, this connection between uh, switches on the one hand and zeros and ones on the other hand. Um, and in this uh, famous master's thesis, Shannon didn't just you know, pause this connection. Uh, he actually drew out some very basic um, uh, circuit designs for um, arrangements of circuits that could make decisions and figure out logical statements on the basis of, of on or off or one or zero. You know, so for instance, one of the ones I remember is, is a um, design for a very basic alarm system. Um, but basically, it was a really influential proof of concept for how computers could do very complex, intellectually demanding things with a, you know, the, the most simple possible set of components, whatever it is that could either be on or off, or whatever kind of um, medium could you know, have um, these two possible states. You know, Shannon said basically it could evaluate any logical statement that was possible. If you had enough of those switches aligned and aligned correctly, uh, you could do anything with them. Uh, and again, um, uh, you know, along with, with the work by uh, you know, von Neumann and others in this period, um, this is one of the just fundamental building blocks uh, of the computers we still use here, including to record this podcast. I just want to check in with Jimmy for a second. I, he dropped off and I didn't notice, but we've got oh, him back on. He says on. he's back on yep. now. I am, oh, yeah. I am back on. Cool. All right. Just checking in there. Yeah. Um, okay. Resetting here. So, again, it seemed like just kind of a, it wasn't like anybody was thinking about this algebra as a solution for integrated or logic circuits at the time. And he just happened to, to stumble into this. And there's that kind of out of the box uh, thinking that seems to pervade his whole career. In fact, his, what, his PhD advisor sent him off to do a PhD on genetics. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so the really interesting thing is that um, Shannon had zero background in genetics, just like he had zero background in, in, um, in computing before he started his master's thesis. Um, so the fact that Bush wanted him to get involved in statistical genetics um, was really uh, you know, sort of a vote of confidence uh, from a guy, Vannevar Bush, who was one of the most influential figures in the scientific establishment in that period, and, and we go on um, during... Um, uh, during World War II, uh, you know, to be to be an advisor to presidents, to be the first national science advisor, to um, you know, be one of the public faces of science, and probably most triumphant period in in uh, in 20th century American history. So this is a guy by asking Shannon to get into a completely different field, um, giving him a tremendous vote of confidence. So what Shannon did was he went to a place called um, Cold Spring Harbor that had a tremendous library of genetic data. Um, one thing we touched on in the book is the reason it was there is sort of a, it's, um, there's sort of a dark backstory to it, which was that the, the collection of genetic data um, uh, grew out of interest in eugenics. So there's essentially mm -hmm. a eugenics laboratory or a eugenics data center um, at this laboratory. And Shannon didn't really demonstrate the interest in, in eugenics. And, and by the time that he and Bush 
you know, sort of came on the scene and started working on it. It was in the process of being discredited, especially because of the, the way that the Nazi regime in Germany um, um, used a lot of American and other eugenic thinking uh, as part of its, uh, um, uh, its, its racism, genocidal policies. So eugenics is in the pro- process of being discredited. Um, but Shannon's not really interested in that. What he's really interested in is thinking about different ways to um, uh, to symbolize and do statistics with the genetics of population. So he's involved in population genetics and trying to make conclusions about, you say you start off with a population of X number of turtles. Some of them have this kind of shell, some of them have that kind of shell. Given some constraints, what would the population of turtles look like 20 generations in the future? And Shannon developed his own system of notation and his own um, you know, series of rules to make reasonable calculations about um, um, uh, population genetics over time. Anyway, uh, the, the thesis is the, the dissertation is, is successful. He earns his PhD from MIT, does it in just a couple of years. Um, he chooses not to follow up on it, though. And actually, one of the interesting things we did in the course of the book was we followed up on people who've written about this thesis after Shannon became uh, famous in another field. And they said that if he had stuck in genetics, he might have been as important in genetics as he ended up being in information theory. Mm. He, was, he was quite ahead of his time, but it kind of tells you a little bit about how, how important personal and professional networks are in science. You know, Shannon's entire network was in uh, feels like you know, computing and knowledge engineering. He just didn't really know that much in, in the genetics world. You know, so he wasn't really successful or even capable of getting people in that world to pay attention to his insights um, and change that field the way he would go on to change engineering and computer science. Now, if he'd stuck in it, you know, maybe that would have changed over time. But I think Shannon made an assessment that I think a lot of people make when they're coming out of grad school which was, you know, what's going to be the most efficient use of, of the time and the talents that I had. And he realized genetics wasn't really it. So, you know, he's glad he did it for an intellectual uh, exercise, didn't really publish it or make much of it. Um, you know, but then um, uh, he was happy to get the PhD and to go on in a, in a future, um, actually at Bell Labs, um, where he gets to, you know, pursue his more original passions for, for engineering. Right, right. It seemed like his... Um advisor was really steering him into just a completely different area as a way of uh, just keeping your mind open to new ideas, new concepts. I mean, what what I guess this leads me to, to think about uh, throughout our conversation is he had this brilliant uh, six steps to problem solving thing that came out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's, actually, uh, it's actually one of, it's one of the more interesting and underrated documents that Shannon left behind. He wasn't someone, you know, he wasn't someone like Feynman where he would have written a book, you know, sort of, surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman. Um, But we found this speech that he gave about problem solving to a group at Bell Labs where he sort of deconstructs different approaches that he takes to solving problems. And, you know, this would, this would sort of, like I think the equivalent would be like, you know, sort of Michael Jordan teaches you how to do a free throw, right? Or something like this is one of the world history's great problem solvers kind of describing his approach. And by, by some accounts, he was sort of, it was sort of an awkward presentation because it wasn't like a formal speech. Um, and at, at the end, he just kind of dives into another a problem that he wants to solve with the group. But it is one of these kind of lasting relics that we were able to find and unearth. Uh, and share a bit more broadly with the world. 
Yeah, I, I love this. This it really. I just read about it, so and you're reminding me that you guys really just dug this up. So it's it's something that does seem like it needs more uh, broadcast, more in the world. Uh, step one: simplify, simplify, simplify. Um, there's a lot of talk in the entrepreneur space and the innovation space about first principles, going back to first principles, and that seems to evolve just looking at the physics of the situation. It all boils down to physics, but... Uh, I'm still there, sorry. It's all right, no worries. Yeah. But that's what comes up for me when we start out with simplify, is like question your assumptions and make sure you're all focused in on on what the actual problem is and not getting caught up in, in tangents and extraneous data. Um, yeah, Shannon was was tremendously skilled at that, uh, and that's a piece of advice he also gave to his students. Uh, you know, later on down the road when he took on some more mentoring roles. Uh, but you know, in, in everything that we looked at, that he was you know a, a major pioneer in, and was an influential figure in. Um, you know, that's really something that he he both appreciated and practiced it um, when it comes to his work on information theory. Um, what what's really remarkable about that to people who came afterwards is that. It's a tremendous work of, of simplification, stripping away all the extraneous stuff. You know, when Shannon wants to study things like the um, uh, the qualities that make uh, messages capable of being compressed, capable of being protected against loss, uh, and so on, the things that are the basis of, of modern uh, IT uh, and the information age in many ways, um, he starts by asking, well, what, what can we say about messages in general if you completely abstract away their content? Um, how can you think about and measure information if it's something like as if it were something like a physical quantity that, that obeyed almost physical rules um and we don't want to suggest that shannon was the only one thinking about information that way in the time you know we, we talk about some of his influences and some of the ways in which uh his predecessors especially at bell labs had, had taken up this um uh line of thought about talking information like it's a physical uh property but but shannon just really jumps on this and runs with it um and that, that's really where he made his biggest mark and that, that tremendous simplification of saying, how can we talk about information, but also ignoring the content of messages. Um, and, and there were very few, if anyone, uh, thinking about information in those terms at the time that Shannon writes his famous paper. Yeah, when we you started covering that in the book and, and he was looking at like the structure of, of language and, and it, the simplicity of it really blew me away. When I first started thinking about it, I thought, well, okay, there's language rules like I before E except after C, and, and then we're going to get, you know, how do you encode that? Mm -hmm. But he took it just to such a a greater level of simplicity. Like, if you have a letter, how many times does the letter T appear, period? Right, right. And then, yeah, and then what, okay, if you have a T, how many times does the letter H appear after T versus K, for example? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll tell you about the um, the uh, simplification that you mentioned. Um, you know, as I said, I, I was starting to look at Shannon's work as someone in a completely different field, as a, as a political theorist. Um, mm. But I was able to, you know, read and make sense of of Shannon's papers, including his, you know, famous 1948 paper. You know, there's probably some of the more dense math that was a little bit over my head. But the basic point is that even someone with with a basic education without background in that field can really watch you watch as Shannon is walking you through the basic concepts of this field he's invented scratch this field of information theory in a way that that's both really insightful but also really accessible and I think a lot of that has to do with the simplification 
um, just really stripping this down to nuts and bolts and saying, we're, you know, start from the very basic question of what, what do we mean by a bit? What is a bit? How, do you, how does that allow you to measure information regardless of the content of the message that the information is carrying? And starting from that point, building up a really um, impressive system of thinking systematically about information. Uh, but as someone who is not coming from that world, I was really impressed with Shannon uh, in his ability to distill and communicate some really difficult ideas in a way that even someone like me could get. And it seemed like at, at some point it got carried away where people were applying communication theory to all sorts of things. And he actually issued a statement telling the world to, to slow their roll a little bit on that. Uh, yeah, there's this, this famous uh, uh, piece by Shannon called The Bandwagon, um, in which he described just that, that, this idea that people were using information theory as sort of a master discipline. He said, well, if we can just measure the information content in anything, what if we applied it to uh, the history of literature or to geology or to religion or who knows? And, and you know, Shannon essentially says what you said, slow your roll uh, in, in <laughs> slightly more slightly more polite terms. But I think this says some interesting things about him. One, it says that he was very, he took you know the, the scientific rigor of what he was trying to do very seriously. He didn't like people popularizing it and applying it outside of its its very specific domain, domain which was um, you know specifically in encoding and decoding messages. And um, where a lot of other you know, pop science figures or, or public intellectuals in this period, um, and I mentioned Buckminster Fuller, for instance, as an, as an example, I think because of just a biography came out on him recently, we're really happy to see their ideas popularized and even a little bit bastardized and taken up in a broader public in a way that sort of simplified them. Um, that was never really Shannon's goal. Uh, he never really wanted to be the public face of anything or to be the public face of information theory. And, and even though information theory um, really had a, a you know, kind of late 40s, early 50s vogue, um, you know, Shannon took some deliberate steps to slow down its development as, you know, not as a scientific discipline, but as sort of a master metaphor or master narrative for understanding other parts of the culture. That was just, that just didn't seem serious to him. And he didn't really care about any kind of public claim that might have um, accrued to him as a result. So and I would, good... I would go one step, I would go one step further and say he, he would frequently like turn down opportunities to give talks, opportunities to do media. Uh, there was this kind of contrarian sensibility when it came to becoming famous. And there's this great line, someone asks him uh, later in life, someone asks him to come to some place to give a, give a speech. They're willing to obviously pay. I think there might've been an award involved. And uh, Shannon writes back and says, um, as, as we've gotten older, as he's referring to his wife, Betty, he says, as we've gotten older, we have a few rules. Betty doesn't do windows and I don't give talks. It, it certainly seemed like, uh, well, I think that was maybe one of the uh, 11 life lessons that you presented in, in studying Shannon is to kind of uh, keep your inbox clean or not keep it clean, but just minimize the inputs. And as his fame and notoriety spread, he was always getting awards and, and asked to talk and just had to really close that off because it was a distraction from what he really wanted to do was tinker and solve problems. Uh, that said, he won the Kyoto Prize. You want to tell us a little about that? Seemed like a pretty big deal. Yeah, so um, this was, he was sort of rolled out as sort of an alternative, alternative Nobel. Um, 
And Shannon was one of the, the very early winners of this. And he went and sort of gave a, a speech summarizing his, his career and, and accepting this sort of capsule in honor for his career uh, in Kyoto, Japan, which was tough for him, by the way, because he was not really, uh, you know, he, he wasn't much of a world traveler. Uh, he was much of a homebody, um, was, was such a meat and potatoes sort of guy that he had trouble eating Japanese cooking. So it was a whole thing for him. But I think the main thing is, is that, you know, towards the end of his career, um, you know, a lot of people recognized what a pivotal and transformative figure Shannon was and really attempted to uh, um, uh, to give him the honors that he deserved in that field. You know, there's no real possibility of him winning a Nobel just because, you know, the fields that he um, could conceivably have won it in, uh, you know, engineering or computer science or math, just, just aren't fields to happen to have a Nobel Prize. That's just sort of a, a random development of which fields got funded with Nobel Prizes. So that fields sort of outside the, the classic ones, I think the Nobel Prizes are being announced like this this week, actually. Um, the fields outside um, um, that kind of circle, uh, you know, found other sort of ways of honoring their luminaries. And, and Shannon winning the Kyoto Prize was sort of a capstone of what he had done as a luminary in the field of, of computing engineering. And he was the first winner of that prize, is that correct? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that, that part of the reason that the organizers of the prize chose him for that is I think when you are trying to roll out a new award, you oftentimes want to, um, uh, you know, you, you want to have sort of a high profile person to kind of uh, vouch for it and, and justify this new thing you're rolling out. So I think when they were looking for someone who hadn't won a Nobel Prize, but was Nobel Prize caliber, um, mm. I think Shannon was a pretty obvious choice. And then Shannon, as we've touched on, just... Uh tinkered in all sorts of ways. And you mentioned this, but I wonder if you could go into this more, the first wearable computer. Yeah. Um, so this is actually really, it, it's a really interesting part of his sort of post-information theory, um, uh, tinkering and hobbies. You know, after Shannon had um, uh, pioneered this field working at Bell Labs, um, uh, he was able to go on to MIT and then became a tenured professor there. And you know, really because of his success in the field, he had a lot of carte blanche to work on things that interested him. Um, which, uh, you know, some of the interesting results were the, you know, because he wasn't sort of involved in the day to day at a place like Bell Labs anymore. He could really do things that were a little bit more blue sky, and he could do things that were a little bit, uh, you know, the kind of things that wouldn't pay off for some time. But uh, you know, because at this point he was at the center of a network of a lot of people working in these areas, a lot of the ideas he came up with, you know, like, like miniaturization. Um, and, and his work on chess computing as well, go on to be really influential among people that um, um, uh, you might not, you know, sort of the second generation after the information theory came out. So he actually worked with, with a guy named Ned Thorpe uh, developing this wearable computer um, to calculate uh, blackjack odds, I believe. So, you know, they used it to essentially cheat at the Vegas casinos. And what, what it would do is it would, um, um, it would, oh, sorry, it was roulette odds, excuse me. It would calculate where a uh, roulette ball was likely to land um, based on where it started. Uh, it would give you a, a, a chance of you know, beating the house because it could predict with better, um, uh, uh, with better accuracy than random where that ball is going to land. So I think you'd carry the computer in your pocket and it would actually give you input. Uh, it would play a tone based on the answer that you wanted um, through an earbud. So I think Shannon and Thorpe described wearing this to the Vegas casinos um, um, uh, with some mishaps. I think at one point, um, uh, I, I think they tried to conceal the earbud because this was an era in which no one had really seen an, an internal and inner ear speaker of the kind that kind of looked like little Apple AirPods today. Um, so instead it looked like there was an insect crawling out of his ear. So he had to kind of run away and go to the bathroom and conceal it again. Um, but anyway, after doing this and doing quite well at the uh, roulette tables, 
Uh, I think Shannon and Thorpe were sort of politely asked to leave, or maybe not so politely, by the casino management. Um, and I think they, they they took the hit and got out of there. But but even though it didn't really lead to a lot of uh, uh, long term gambling success for them, it ended up being you know also another one of Shannon's influential projects because in many ways a lot of our kind of small wearable computers or even uh, you know uh, phones that act as miniature computers uh, you know in many ways can look to Shannon's uh, portable uh, roulette computer as sort of a distant ancestor. It's uh heartwarming to know the first wearable computer may have been used to cheat on roulette to beat the that, house. That's really fantastic. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, but that, 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 that's just Shannon. He really, um, he was an irreverent sort of guy. And I think the idea, the challenge of beating the house um, uh, was really attractive to him. And I don't think he would have, uh, you know, he would have said, um, well, you know, I put so much work into this. It doesn't really count as cheating if I'm, if I had to engineer an entire computer <laughs> from scratch. I'm kind of, I'm entitled to whatever winnings I get as a result. I'm not sure the casino saw it that way. But I, I would imagine that's how he would justify it to himself. Nice. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. that's, so that's a great image. And the other image I have now in my head is uh, a man roaming the halls of university on a unicycle juggling. Um, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think it's it's actually connected to something that we found that was interesting about Shannon was there was a physicality to his uh, pursuits. You know, so he was... An academic, he had published papers in journals, uh, and he could kind of think with the best of them. But he also uh, was a, a proficient juggler. He built unicycles and was a unicyclist. He would build machines, and so there was a kind of way in which he was working in, uh, well, <laughs> the world of bits and the world of atoms. Um, and it it makes him a little bit different from some of the other people of the time, uh, but also from our perspective, more interesting. The juggling and unicycling is. You know, he does combine them at Bell Labs, and there are famous stories of him kind of roaming the halls. Um, he also constructs his own fleet of unicycles and starts to miniaturize them down until he has one that's, I don't know, I think it was like a couple inches big, just for the just for the joke, just for the humor of it, to see what it would look like. Um, and so again, these are pursuits that there's some there's some trace of all of that even in the information theory paper that's published in the Bell Systems Technical Journal, right? This is somebody who is willing to allow his mind to even go to build a two-inch unicycle if that's what it takes to understand something or make himself laugh. The other one that sticks out is uh, you flip a, a machine on and the whole purpose of the machine is the hand comes out and turns itself off. Um, the so ultimate just, machine. Yeah, that was, that was a classic. Um, and. Um, yeah, it was just, uh, it really, I think, captures that this kind of puckish sense of humor that he had, that, that he, um, and also we, we thought, you know, not, not to psychoanalyze too deeply, but there was something in there about the machine that wanted to just be left alone. Uh, you know, Shannon had <laughs> a bit that of his, that, that was a bit of his personality as well. Um, as much as he enjoyed um, being a practical joker uh, and being a trickster and being playful and doing things like, like riding down the, the hallway of the unicycle with, with juggling, um, he wanted this to be on his own terms, you know, certainly not an outgoing person, certainly a guy who did his best work um, um, uh, in a really sort of quiet, lonerish sort of way. Um, and I think he, you know, he, not not to go too far into psychoanalyzing, but I think he, he must have felt like that machine at times, especially as he sort of became a, a better known figure, um, both in his field and, and internationally, and sometimes probably just wanted to go tinker, which was his real you know, passion ever since he was a kid. Mm. There's something about the tinkering 
that strikes me um, in terms of just general problem solving. Like he is a man who seems to have an intuitive understanding of how things work and gets involved in different things. Um, when he talks about fill your mental matrix with solutions to similar problems mm-hmm. or approach the problem from many different angles. Mm-hmm. Um, those, and even breaking down a big problem into smaller pieces, it just seems like when you're, you're uh, in my, in my experience, when you're tinkering with things like that and experimenting with the physical world, it, it really puts practicality down you know it's easy to get lost in our minds about things and go in tangents and directions but there's a real like how do i make this thing work if i'm in the physical world tinkering with things i think i think part of that just to elaborate on that a bit i think part of that is also a byproduct of upbringing you know he Mm. he grows up in the midwest he grows up in michigan the town he grows up in gaylord is a town that's core business is making things it's in lumber um so he's constructing you know, makeshift elevators in his backyard and primitive communications devices with his friends. But he's in a place and of a place that say maybe a little bit distinct from Manhattan, you know, they've got space and they build things and he builds things. And so part of this is the certainly a byproduct of this kind of Midwestern tinker creation. And there is a pretty powerful tradition of those people then going, you know, to the coast, whether to, to Silicon Valley to, to build modern technology hmm. or to the to the East Coast to be a part of you know, uh, either the defense establishment at the time or prestigious universities, but he is firmly of his place. He is, he is a, a, a kind of son of Michigan in that way, where he has this hard-headed practicality that infuses his entire career. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that we spent a lot of time looking at what was his life like when he was a boy? Who were his ancestors? What, what did he do at the University of Michigan? Because I think it's, it, it, it's impossible to tell the Shannon story without appreciating that part of his upbringing. Thank you. Love that. Um, really big influence. It seemed like his father was a big influence on him, if I remember correctly. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, you know, Shannon's father was uh, um, pretty old when uh, Shannon was born. So there's there a bit of an age gap. And I don't think they had a super close mentoring kind of relationship. But at the same time, this tinkering that Shannon picked up as a big part of his life you know, was really a part of his family uh, going back several generations. I think his grandfather invented a, an early uh, a patent for a washing machine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sort of not the washing machine, but this is a time when there were there were lots of different ideas for how to mechanically agitate clothes and water uh, were sort of percolating. And Shannon's grandfather uh, happened to do one of those. Um, you know, his dad was a, a, a local figure, a local businessman um, who also um, did a lot of work with his hands uh, in in uh, Upper Michigan. Um, and, and this is sort of the, the kind of rural do-it-yourself community that Shannon grew up in. Um, you know, he was um, uh, just just had a, a, you know, aside from school, which he did pretty well at, but nothing like, you know, you know, he wasn't sort of marked for greatness at an early age. Aside from that, uh, he had a ton of unstructured time to, to tinker and play and make stuff. And the best example we found in the, uh, in, in the early days in the biography was this barbed wire telegraph system uh, that he rigged up between his house and his friend's house in which they could communicate and send um, uh, telegraph messages uh, to one another and using the barbed wire fence that ran between their two properties as a as a conductor for the electrical signals. So, you know, again, um, Shannon wasn't the only kind of kid doing this at the time in sort of the early 20th century, um, 1910s, 1920s. But he really benefited from a culture that, that let kids experiment and play and have a lot of unstructured time to figure these things out. And also a culture that um, 
you know, in, in a, you know, he grew up you know, not, not quite on a farm, but he grew up in a, in a rural centered community that, that made a lot of time and space uh, for people uh, tinkering and working with their hands because that was just sort of an important part of the economy and the way of life. But the other thing that was lucky about the time and place that Shannon was in was that not only did he come out of this community, he was then able to benefit uh, from institutions like, like University of Michigan and public university uh, and MIT, um, which was ramping up its engineering program at the time that really uh, brought a lot of talent out from places like Upper Michigan, like, like Claude Shannon, um, and, and gave them the resources, the, the organization, and the mentorship they ne- needed um, to lay the groundwork of this, this tremendous um, mid-20th century boom in, in science and innovation that, that shaped the U.S. in so many different ways. So in a lot of ways, it's this really fortuitous uh, conjuncture of Shannon's upbringing, uh, his background, and the fact that he's coming onto the scene right when there are a lot of institutions you know, designed really to make the most of talents of people like him. Mm. Perfect. One of the things that came up for me when you were talking about tinkering, I have sort of a similar background in my, my father. Uh, my grandfather ran the hardware store in a small farm town in Kansas. And oh, cool. There's a, yeah. So I, I kind of, my dad became an engineer and, and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. But when you're, when you're tinkering on that level, um, you have what you have, meaning you can't just run out to Lowe's or Home Depot and there's a certain make do with what you have kind of thing. And how can I, you know, take what I've got to make this thing work again, just that practicality thing and and learning how to think outside the box. Well, I need, you know, to do this. What, what are the things that I can use to make that happen? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's really, um, that was something he kept with him for his whole life. Uh, this this sort of hands-on quality. And I think there's a lot of stuff to be learned also about how people think scientifically, where scientific innovation comes from. It's, it's not just a head discipline. It's a very hands-on discipline. Um, and then I think when people talk about what you mentioned about Shannon's intuitiveness, his ability to grasp problems in sort of single um, steps, his ability to just sort of get to the heart of something, um, a lot of that I think comes from the fact that he spent a lot of time practicing solving problems practically with his hands. You know, going back to that master's thesis, which is about, uh, you know, the problem of how do you get th- this massive room-sized analog computer to operate? Um, a lot of his major insights and steps came from first applying, um, uh, you know, th- these questions of handwork that that became brainwork. But but you know, he didn't really recognize a um, a sharp dividing line between those two things. And I think a lot of people who have um, had that experience and the kind of experiences you described, you know, have found that that they are separate disciplines, and that a lot of times um, thinking in the process of working with with hands uh, can oftentimes be a route to insights to just sort of noodling over something that isn't. Uh, you know, this is something that's really interesting and alien to me because you know my, I, I'm an academic and I just read books for a living and I write books for a living, but um, I, I think there's a dimension to the kind of physicality of how Shannon thought. And to the, the 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 physicality of how we solve problems, that's really productive, but also really really interesting and and absent in the way that I approach problems. So it's really something I could sort of relate to, not from experience, but from you know that I I can tell how that would be nice and helpful and productive, and how that was such an important part of Shannon's life, um, both from the way he described it, yeah, and, and from trying to do academic work really without that. I would I would add one one thing to what to what Rob said. Um, not as a as a prescription, but as a description of of Shannon's work. The other place where the physical and the theoretical and the mathematical mix is in his war work. So when he's at Bell Labs, you know they're 
they're doing, he's he's doing math, not for the sake of just doing math and publishing papers. He's doing it so that the U.S. military can more precisely target its munitions. And so there's there's almost always this through line of of the 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 physical and the digital mixing in his work. And it's it's has very high stakes at Bell Laboratories. Now, he didn't actually like that work so much. Um, He he was a little bit dismissive of it. He thought the math wasn't super challenging. It was I was it was a universal opinion. A number of mathematicians at the time write about that. But it's still important. It's a part of his makeup. And you could see how someone like this would end up doing the kinds of things that he did, particularly later in his life when he switches very much in the direction of building machines. He builds the world's first chess playing computer. He you know, builds up, as we talked about, the world's first wearable device. Um, he, he builds even things that are just, just for whimsy, uh, a flame throwing, uh, sorry, a, a, a rocket powered Frisbee, uh, <laughs> a chair elevator that takes him from his, the, the backyard of his home down to the lake uh, on the property. Um, he he built this button in his kitchen, I guess, that if you pushed it, it an index finger in the in his workshop would would curl and make a little noise so that he knew that he was being summoned. I mean, thing after thing like this, where uh, there's a clear sense that he isn't just going to be a machinist and he's not just a mathematician. He manages to blend the two in in some really interesting ways. I love the the story about his work during the war and how. You know, the math was kind of simple and repetitive. Uh, but what it what made it so great for me and what it reminded me of is is when I was a kid, um, I, I grew up with the personal computer. We got Apple computers in our, our elementary school in like third grade, and there was different games like Oregon Trail. But and there was oh, yeah, one and classic. I think it might have <clears throat> Oregon Trail's yeah. a classic. That that's a defining thing of my childhood. Yeah, and that's one of the, you know, that and maybe Lemonade Stand are the two that I could really remember looking back. And then um, this talk about his work, Shannon's work in the World War, I guess it was World War II, uh, reminded me that we used to play a game called Artillery, where it's just like you uh, had a target and you had a gun and you had to kind of calculate the angle and maybe the, Mm -hmm. I forget, there was just a few variables, but we we would spend uh, hours just playing that and taking great delight in, in that. Um, yeah, I spent, I spent hours and I think I still bemoan all the oxen meat that I couldn't take with me, right? Or whatever it was, oh, it was buffalo. It was like, but you'd kill the buffalo, but you had a max on the amount of meat you could take and you'd successfully, you know, felled all these, these things that could be valuable, but the game had a limit on what you could take back. Um, but, but more seriously, I think that one of the things that I always take away from Shannon's life and work is, you know, we, 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 we're very instrumental sometimes in the things that we pursue, right? We want to take on a hobby and I'm as guilty, by the way, I'm like patient number one, like I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but what he, what his life argues for is for allowing a certain amount of your curiosity to just pursue an end without a specific, you know, ROI in mind. Um, one of the things that makes him amazing is that he is willing to just decide to do something, pursue it and see what's, see what results without any kind of, uh, he's not, he's not, he's not posting pictures of he had this tree in his property and he decided that he was going to cut it down, but then he changed his mind to decide I'm going to carve it into a, a, a pirate, a pole with a skull at the very top. And I'm going to hang a pirate flag from it, but he's not doing that. So he gets a very cool Instagram photo and a bunch of likes. He's just doing it because it, he's curious about whether he could do it and how cool it would look if it was done. And I think there is something to that that can be a corrective to like just a lot of how we work, a lot of how we live. 
you know, he was somebody that did these things that we are still talking about decades later, but it wasn't as though he was doing them with the intention that we would be talking about them decades later. Following your, your curiosity, that seemed to be a, a big part of, of what was he was about. And in a time when maybe curiosity wasn't exactly valued, there was the phrase uh, usefully irritated that he talked about in driving, uh, in driving him and what he chose to pursue. Do you talk about useful irritation? Yeah, I think he mentioned this in his, his talk on creativity is sort of when something just sort of bothers you that is is incomplete or 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 there, there's a problem there that you can't quite put your finger on, but you know it's stimulating you towards um uh you know that's not quite right, I can do better. Um and I, I, that's behind a lot of Shannon's um success in a lot of different fields. But I think about it in particularly you know behind his um uh, his, his work on information theory, you know, it grew out of some very technical problems. You know, the problems that, that the Bell system had in um, sending, you know, relatively lossless uh, telephone messages across this, this uh, giant national and then uh, intercontinental network uh, of telephone wires. So uh, of all the people in the U.S. who are concerned with questions of, of information um, uh, compression, encoding, uh, decoding, safe transmission, um, Bell was was probably at the forefront of this just because they had to be, and I, you know, the, the, the problem that Shannon was was drawn into was you know the problem of how can you encode information safely to make sure that you you can have it trans, uh, transmit perfectly from sender to receiver. Um, this this idea as we described in the book that you could actually have perfect a hundred percent accurate or or accurate to whatever degree of accuracy you choose to invest in information transmission. In the book we described as, as sort of a, a utopian thought, no one really thought this was possible, that you could do this. And I think one of the things that irritated Shannon you know, was people thinking this, you know, thinking that there was no theoretical way to transmit information with perfect accuracy or with with in, indefinitely good accuracy, uh, to, to be more technical about it. Um, and that was one of the sort of irritants that got him, got him thinking on this. You know, People, when they read his paper, um, described it as, as this, this revelation because he, he did some things that no one had really thought possible before. Um, you know, of course, in reality, um, that there's very little need for that kind of perfectly accurate information transmission, the, the, the kind of information that, that we send uh, digitally, uh, that we, we, we have on phone calls, cell phone calls, uh, Zoom chats, um, uh, sending files over the internet. There, there's room for slightly less than 100% accuracy. Um, what Shannon said is theoretically, um, information transmission can be an, as accurate as you want, you know, provided that you uh, spend the time encoding your information correctly. And one of his big insights in that work on, on, on encoding information was that the, the, the key to uh, accurate information transmission wasn't sending out the signal with, with, with more energy behind it, just sort of shouting louder as we described in the book. It actually has everything to do with how your messages are encoded. Um, uh, so that codes, the, the, the way it is coded in a sense, can act as a buffer that can absorb distortion or noise along the way from sender to receiver um, with the essential message still getting through correctly. Um, so this idea that Shannon had that, that, that the key to accurate transmission of information was the way we encode our information, not how loudly we shout it, um, was a big moment and a big breakthrough 
in, in the history of thinking about these topics. And again, it, it came out of this very practical irritation, this idea that um, there is a practical problem that Bell Labs was trying to solve, and Shannon wasn't really satisfied the way that people were solving it up to that point. Yeah, that that's what really struck me as a, as a big realization as I was going through the book and learning about Shannon is just, uh, I mean, the classic problem I think of is when there's maybe a language barrier between two people. And so, you know, people's natural tendency for some reason is to talk louder in order to somehow uh, overcome that language barrier. But in fact, uh, Shannon would say that uh, you need to up your redundancy. So uh, that seemed to be the secret. And instead of increasing the noise, the signal to overcome the noise is to add redundancy to your communication. Um, completely changed my perspective on how, how things work. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's really that, that, that's a good way of putting it, and I think that was a real. It, it was a big moment in lateral thinking, and this idea that, that rather than just sort of extrapolating the kind of solution that people had developed up to that point, um, he attacked the problem in a in a completely different way. That again, you know, in retrospect, about a you know, a half century later, can seem more than a half century now, um, can seem obvious uh, or can seem intuitive, but certainly was not at the time. It seems obvious now, right? And it, probably at the time, it just until he applied these mathematical models to what they were doing, it just didn't come out until you start playing with the math. So it's one mm -hmm. way where the abstract mathematical uh, can can lead to real world solutions really quickly. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, um, Jimmy, you had something. Yeah, I was just going to say. I think the, the other contribution is that he created the field, right? So he he. He kind of came in and said, here are the key questions, here are some ideas, here are some of my answers. But he also set on fire a generation of researchers in this space who would take his insights and advance them. I think that's one really important thing that we learned because we had the good fortune of interviewing a lot of those people and they credit their lives and careers to Shannon. Mm. Yeah, the, the word proof of concept was put out earlier in this discussion and it seemed like that was kind of he would put out these big picture concepts of of how these things worked and then kind of left it to everybody else to fill in the details um at least that's one of the things i got out of it um all right are there uh, as we wrap up here is there anything any quite what's the question you've always wanted to be asked about claude shannon but were never asked oh boy um <laughs> Jeez, I think you should ask. You should ask us about the funeral. Oh, the, the funeral. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. So, so the question is then is tell us he he had an idea of the funeral he wanted to have or some kind of vision for a funeral. Is that, I remember reading about that recently, but yeah, Jimmy, do you do you have that? Um, this is something that you sort of dug up, I believe, in your research. Yeah, you know, he, it was one of these funny things. Of, you sort of see his grim sense of humor because uh, buried within his papers at the Library of Congress is this plan for his own funeral. And what he wants is a parade. He has uh, a series of floats that he's drawn. He has a computer playing chess against a human. He has a bunch of robots. There's a, a whole series of other things. But it was really funny because, you know, we, we had a good interaction with the Shannon family throughout. And um, the one thing they were a little queasy about is look like dad had this sense of humor that you know may not come across well but um it, it says something i powerful about him i think that even in his plan for his death 
you know, the focus wasn't on will and testament or assets. It was, let me make the most uh, humorous funeral I possibly can, or at least sketch it out. Now, I don't believe that's the way they went, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I think maybe, maybe the thought counts for but I do think that that, that one nice piece is that um, I, I, on the uh, back of his uh, his tombstone uh, in Mount Auburn Cemetery uh, in Massachusetts um, is his uh, the, the key information from the uh, equation from his information theory paper. So that little bit of his legacy uh, is still uh, there for for people who know what that equation means in the back of his tombstone. Well, it seems like your research into Claude Shannon has has brought two gems that we we ought to pay more attention to. One being uh, the funeral procession, because I just <laughs> read about that last night, and I I was yeah. kind of uh, toward, I was I was trailing off at the end of my reading, but I have to go back. It was it was quite the scene that he painted uh, for his funeral. But then this uh, this kind of little known six steps for problem solving that you folks discovered in your research yeah. is is just uh, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and that that part is especially great, I think, because this is someone who just he he walked the walk. He wasn't just uh, um, he he was not making it up. This was this is very much directly from his experiences as one of the most um, successful problem solvers uh, of his time. Awesome. Well, any any final words or anything you'd like to share with us? How to find you? Maybe your next project. You know, I think one of the things that we should mention is, you know, in addition to checking out our book, A Mind of Play, about Shannon, there's a great documentary that was done uh, by a director named Mark Richardson called a bit, The Bit Player, um, and I would encourage people to check that out as well. I will make sure we link to that in the show notes, and uh, I will, again, give a shout out to your book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, really. Thanks so much. Uh it was educational, helped me understand, you know, the details of uh, integrated circuit design using algebra and also communications theory, as well as several other technical things that we got, you got into. But it also just painted that picture of the, such a curious uh, and interesting character. Well, thanks a lot for having us on to talk about it. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk about Blood Shannon. All right, great. Well, thank you very much. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to Rob Goodman and Jimmy Sawney for taking the time to chat. Check out all the links in the show notes to learn more. And thank you to Christina Pearson and Richard Rasa of Hilaritas Press. Thank you to engineer Ryan Reeves for putting it all together. Our next episode, releasing the 23rd of December, will feature Oz Fritz discussing the intersection of magic and literature in Ra's writing. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e hilaritas. Uh, uh.